iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? I mean, I think what's interesting about these newer generations is how insistent they are on authenticity and integrity when it comes to the product that they're consuming. And it's sort of like mass scale artisanal interest. It's not interesting if it doesn't have an artisanal sense to it. And now that I've appreciated that artisanal quality, I want it everywhere I go. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds from the top people in tech. This week on the program, we have a two for one. I sat down with Danny Reimer and Jan Hammer, who are both partners at Index Ventures, the venture capital firm. They invited me over to their very sleek offices in San Francisco, and we sat down and talked about a whole load of things. I mean, you may know uh, a few, you may not know Index, but you'll definitely know a few of the, their big hits, including companies like Skype, way back in the day, Sonos, Dropbox, Deliveroo, Etsy, Just Eat, Facebook, Blue Bottle Coffee, etc. You get the idea. Now, Index is also interesting because it's one of the very few companies or very few venture capital firms that's truly transatlantic. So they started out in Switzerland many, many years ago, then went to London, then opened an office in San Francisco San Francisco about a decade ago. And they have a pretty even split now of companies between Europe and the U.S. So that gives them a bit of a different perspective on kind of what they look for, the things that are important to them, what makes a good company, etc., so we talk about that, and we talk about what it's like as a venture capitalist where you spend your days just hearing one off-the-wall idea after another, and then deciding which one of those crazy ideas might actually work and become the next big thing. So we talk about all kinds of stuff. We talk about flying cars, uh, how they try to get inside the minds of young people to figure out kind of what's coming next. Um, we talk about whether we are seeing the end of cash coming into view, and a whole lot of other stuff. But we started on one of my favorite topics, which are scooters, you know, electric scooters. Index, you see, is a very big investor in the biggest startup in that booming, totally ridiculous industry, Bird. So I asked them a simple question, why? And so without further ado, here they are, Danny and Jan, to answer. Enjoy. Speaking of dreaming big, you guys have invested in Bird, and I've done some stuff on scooters. 
and spoken to some investors. I spoke to one guy, um, Sar Gur. Yep. Who was investing in Bird, and he was talking about how this kind of last mile mobility will yield an Apple like company, and this is a kind of a generational innovation, which all sounds, I mean, if you look at a scooter, it looks kind of a bit silly, but what do you think? We're pretty bullish on the space. Yeah. I mean, we're pretty bullish on the fact that the last mile, as a result of all of the transformation that's going on in the transportation space, is going to generate some very, very sizable companies. Because of a combination of modality, the way that you're able to be transported, and also because of behavior that is being unleashed for the first time. What do you so, mean? so in other words, before there were no opportunities to get from point A to point B quickly, safely, economically, ecologically, wasn't there. There were bike lanes, you had to cycle, you couldn't really deal with hills, you couldn't really pick it up in one place and drop it off in another. I mean, there's just so many aspects that are happening. And you arrive um, sweaty. You arrive gross, you have to pick up that bike and yeah. port it up to the, your, you know. So th those aspects are changing. The way that we think of transportation, the fact that it's immediate gratification, that we can just turn on an app and, you know, for longer distance, we can carpool if we're going to work with Scoop, which we're really excited about, or obviously use blah blah in Europe, you know, from going from... Is um, blah blah, what is blah blah? Oh, blah blah car. <laughs> blah blah car is a really interesting company. It's a French company that provides... Is it bleu bleu? It, it, it's blah blah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's actually an interesting name. It was called Blah Blah because depending on how vocal you wanted the passenger to be, you could say whether it was Blah 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 or Blah Blah Blah. And so okay. the concept was for long haul rides, you could pick up some passengers, make a few euros and, and drive them from Paris to Lyon or Paris to Aix-en-Provence and distances that are quite significant but couldn't be replicated in the U.S. because the U.S. is so So massive. you're kind of disrupting hitchhiking. That's right. And now it's integrated into the bus system and into the train system. The point is there's, yes, Uber and Lyft have been transformational, but actually what they've done is they've expanded the scope of all the different ways that you can be transported from point A to B. And there are all these new economically feasible ways of getting there. And we think that, I mean, one of the benefits that we feel we have is by looking at the innovation that's happening in Europe and in the US, we can look at scooters and motorcycles and mopeds. And, you know, we looked at pretty much everything and yeah. concluded that actually electric scooters was, uh, was a really viable alternative. And then it was a question of which is which the one? team that yeah. can actually... As you can tell, we're quite passionate yeah, about well, it. Yeah, well, that was, it makes me think of the, this quote from Dara Khosrowshahi at Uber, who said, you know, the car is just, that's kind of step one. They want to be a much bigger transport company, and that's just the beginning. I can't imagine what else that would include, aside from maybe scooters, which they've invested in Lime, I believe. Yeah, and they bought Jump, which I think is an electric yeah. sort of scooter company. Yeah. An electric bike company. Are there yeah. any other kind of forms of transport that people are messing around with? Hoverboards. 
No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, that's no, good... Anything that you guys are getting excited about in terms of just this whole, like, you know, the holistic, no matter where you want to go door to door, there's going to be a way to kind of get there. Yeah, it's definitely an area that we keep on looking at. Perhaps worth quickly mentioning a company in our European portfolio called CityMapper, which I came, know out, this name, which but came I out of London yeah. and, and is not a transport company in itself, but it's a transport data company mm. that ultimately tries to map everybody's journey and the most effective way of getting from A to B. There's this this concept that I, I guess you have just been discussing, this kind of mu- multimodal, yeah. because your journey may include more than one mode of transport. And are you guys get, are you looking at flying cars at all? That seems to be a thing. Flying cars, no, but actually autonomous vehicles. So mm-hmm. actually self-driving cars is a big area for us. So we, we backed uh, this company called Aurora, that is led by Chris Ermson, who worked at Google for 12 years. At uh, Waymo? That's right. Right. Because we had another guy on this podcast, Stefan Krauss, who runs E-Velocity. If you, I don't know if you've heard them. They raised a billion dollars. He used to be at BMW. And they're creating a car from the ground up. Is that what they're doing? Or is they doing software? F- yes, it's the software. Or, it's, right. it's sort of taking all of the learnings, all of the pattern recognition, Everything that's happened in the autonomous vehicle space through a huge amount of work and history, trying to come up with a software layer that will be really helpful to the OEMs, to the car manufacturers. Right. So to provide, you know, the, the internal intelligence for these cars as they are driven around autonomously. And how come no, a no on the uh, flying car scene at the moment? I mean, as you know, a big part of what we you do is timing. It's yeah. timing, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. We don't say no to we the concept very often. It's just a question of when. So you guys are investors in um, Deliveroo. Is that independent in a year? Yes. Because <laughs> there's lots... I mean, you know, this is part of... This is one of the core tenets of Index, which is we, we invest in companies and in entrepreneurs who want to remain independent and want to see their vision through fruition. And that means being an independent company. And for a company like Deliveroo, that's been so innovative and has executed so well on the delivery of you know great food. I mean, in contrast to- It's way better than anything co- we oh, have yeah. here. It's just, it's just night and day. Because having moved here, whatever it was, a year and a half, almost two years now, God. I do miss Deliveroo. And it's only gotten better. It's incredible, right? Really? Because of the density. Caviar, of, DoorDash, all these, they're not y- good. You said that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Note, we didn't say anything. They nodded. We didn't even they nod. nodded. They yeah, nodded. nor I nodded. <laughs> Your job is so fascinating because you guys get to see all the kind of wide-eyed entrepreneurs coming through with like the craziest ideas. What's exciting at the moment if there's like one or two that you could think of right now that would be kind of out of left field that people wouldn't know about well we're taking a shot at you know industries that touch our daily lives so Mm -hmm. we spoke about transport you know one is uh, another one is healthcare and again you would say you know what what has that got to do with venture capital we begged this company out of france called alan that's alan like my name is alan as in alan touring Okay. A L A N. Yeah, yeah. And they started as an insurance company, sort of health insurance carrier, mm. full stack insurance company. Mm-hmm. But that's only 
the start of a journey and the journey is a sort of a connected health vision sort of vertically integrated company a health platform all in one in an app with a range of services whether that's telemedicine at the back end yeah. and you know we investors in a very ambitious company called Cree out of uh, Sweden that actually is now collaborating with Allen on delivering a healthcare service so you sort of start with we talk about fintech we talk about insurance and again it's not just insurance in and of itself the vision is far broader yeah. in terms of sort of holistic healthcare john hancock they would just announced i think it was last month that going forward in the us they are no longer going to write policies that that are not quote unquote interactive policies so there's going to be some kind of health tracking using a fitbit or whatever and that you can basically get bonuses you get free amazon prime if you take a certain amount of steps or do whatever because my dad used to sell insurance actually i used to sell insurance <laughs> way back in the day for my sins but it was you just take a bit of information have somebody come to your house they take your pulse and then they give you a policy and then that's it but it feels like that model isn't going to be around very long yeah I, and i would say two factors one on sort of the input side you know in the in the olden days you'd go to your physician you go once a year and get your you know measurements you know your blood pressure or other sort of vital stats measured and you know that'd be one yearly yeah. sort of a- a episode of an observation you know wearing an apple watch today you're getting hundreds of observations per day so there's a vast amount of data that you can work with on the other side of course you've got current healthcare systems whether they are sort of commercial healthcare system in the united states or the state covered or sort of part state part employer covered in europe and all we know is that the the pressure on the on the payer wallet is enormous you know yeah. we're talking about 20% of gdp being spent on on care but at the same time we do know that we have all this input data we know what the right behaviors are and we know a lot of the the chronic condition is manageable preventable and so on. So the, the opportunity is enormous if only the care got connected. And I guess what we've witnessed in on both sides of the Atlantic has been, you know, there may have been different approaches, but the one failing has been common between the two of them is that the the units and the sort of the value chain of the healthcare system have been disconnected. Yeah. And they're not talking to each other. And technology here is an enabler to to precisely provide that connection and really deliver better outcomes you know better value and ultimately you know healthier lives it's gonna be quite tricky though because it's a bit big brothery to have you know it's kind of like telematics in a car that tracks how fast you drive and all this stuff and this is obviously much more important this is your health care data and what you're doing and what you're putting in your body and how it's reacting etc i imagine it's gonna have to be there's gonna be some tricky ethical questions as that rolls out yeah no doubt uh, I, i agree with you i would say building a business with trust and integrity and sort of safeguarding private data is is vital but it's not just in healthcare so you know if we zoom out of healthcare you know that's ultimately the case in in banking and in insurance is the case in anything to do with mobility for that matter you know your location data so ultimately it's the how to not the what it's sort of you know Danny mentioned in the context of cities and transportation you know concerns like uh, the environment and uh, pollution which of course in you know it's a b- big topic in China yeah. so it, it really becomes a part of the debate of how to deliver good business not 
you know, it's sort of not optional. And clearly, safeguarding data is a big deal. We made an investment in a data management software company called Colibra that is has been growing gangbusters on the back of GDPR, yeah. on the back of well, managing data yeah. privacy. Um, and it, it is a big deal. I'm working on a story for this week, actually, on content moderation. And people like Facebook, who are kind of trying to retroactively figure out how to do this. And I was talking to one of the content moderator companies, and they're saying, you know, the, the newer companies seem are trying to bake this in from the beginning. I'd love to get your perspective as whether companies now that we're 20 years into the internet and the internet is what it is now with all you know the good bad and the ugly if people are more thoughtful when they're setting up companies about rather than just like let's just get big fast as opposed to let's be a bit more thoughtful and careful here yeah i think you're right i mean i think that not only are they being more thoughtful but they're also sort of being very honest about whether or not they've been thoughtful enough and whether or not they have to reevaluate sort of on an ongoing basis what their policies are. And in certain cases, it's tough because they actually have to take a stance and take a position which might alienate a number of, a number of people, but it's a fact. We have a company called Patreon, which is this platform that enables, that connects basically creators to their fans. It's a constant scrutiny that has to happen to make sure that they are protecting not only um, the fan, but also the type of content that appears on the platform. And it's, it's a huge endeavor that I think a lot of the entrepreneurs take this as their core responsibility. I'm just thinking of, and I'll use the example of Facebook, but this idea of the kind of the deification of automation and yep. and machines can solve all. Yep. Do you think that is, people are thinking about that in particular in terms of like, well, maybe let's not be so hasty and just be like, well, if we're trying to build something at scale, it must be solved by machines or it must be kind of looked after by automation, machine learning, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think I think that's, Probably talking to our entrepreneurs, they would view that as a naive view, that it has to be a combination of automation and human intervention, and that actually that human intervention also scales over time. You know, while people think that now, yeah, because it it, it felt like it was like humans as a last resort. That's right. There was a moment where, yes, automation was going to be able to solve all of these problems, but there, there, there's so much nuance that it has to be this combination. It's something that actually, when we are evaluating entrepreneurs, this is a big part of what we are evaluating, is how, how realistic is this entrepreneur on the types of challenges that they're going to have to face as a result of the success of the platform. You know, whether it's Patreon or Discord, you know, you're talking about, or Roblox, you're talking about tens of millions of people depending on this communication platform. That was not the case when we were backing Skype back in the day. You know, that was just sort of the Wild West uh, where people were just blown away by this Estonian company, you know, that would just provide free communication for the first time. I remember when I used Skype for the first time, I I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, it was magical. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot 
is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. What's the kind of most out there thing that you've been pitched? Most out there thing? Yeah, I'm trying to think of something that we actually think is truly off the wall. Because yeah. uh, we, you know, we, we, we suspend disbelief often. So it takes a lot for us to be to be blown away by the by sort of how crazy this concept is. It doesn't have to be something you necessarily disbelieve, but perhaps somebody who doesn't do what you do and sees these well, people every day. I mean, I think that a lot of the robotic endeavors related to food food production well, is the an burger, interesting the burger bot and the cat the coffee bot and and the and the pizza bot and the you know quinoa bots and those are definitely things that there's not a quinoa bot is there well there's a company called itza that actually looks really good it's one of our one of our former entrepreneurs he was behind climate corp dave oh, friedberg yeah. itza so is what is itza doing well itza is automating all the cooking and serving of its food. It's a robot kind of restaurant, effectively? Yeah, that's what it is. So that, that, that's really interesting to see. Can you automate the full production line of food and provide something of high quality to the consumer? The burger restaurant, which was in, in stealth right. for years and years, and then they kind of had a soft launch, but right. then they've gone quiet again. It's, and then there was the Juicero... Oh yeah, debacle. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> I mean, I think what's interesting about these newer generations is how insistent they are on authenticity and integrity when it comes to the product that they're consuming, and it's sort of like mass scale artisanal interest that the brand. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but it's sort of that. It's this notion that. It's not interesting if it doesn't have an artisanal sense to it. And now that I've appreciated that artisanal quality, I want it everywhere I go. Right. And that is a driver for a lot of these companies. It's interesting to us that uh, folks are just not interesting in fast, convenient product anymore. They're, they're really yeah. searching for something that is of the best quality and is worth their time and their money. And I don't know if that's a generational thing, but 
everybody seems to throw up their hands, at least from traditional retail, when you talk about Amazon. Amazon is just killing us, and it's just a question of when, not if. But there do seem to be a lot of kind of micro brands that become start to become mega, who, as you say, do a blue bottle and just be like, look, this is a special thing. This is really art. This is a mass scale, artisanal, whatever. In the shadow of Amazon, you can still build something, but there's a lot of these little micro brands growing up. You're right. I mean, what we call them are micro niches. And right. so we really seek out those niches because while they seem insignificant, when you actually aggregate the demand that's out there, it actually becomes a huge market. So that led us to invest in Etsy. You could say that Patreon's another example of that, except it's on a media standpoint, um, or Good Eggs, or First Dibs for furniture, or Farfetch for high-end luxury goods. You know, those are all areas on the periphery of Amazon. Yeah. They're niches, but those niches are, are massive. I mean, we did one that I think folks think we're crazy, but we met these entrepreneurs who had gone through Y Combinator and had been building a piece of software. And in, in the last hour, they decided to spend the last million they had, pivot completely and create a marketplace for sneakers. It's called Goat. And it's an That's app. It's the greatest of all time. It's after the greatest of all time, exactly. And it's a marketplace app where you can buy the world's greatest sneakers that have been sort of authenticated by their specialists. There's a whole world of crazy sneakerheads who will pay obscene amounts of money for like old school Jordans and stuff. Danny, how do you really feel about them? <laughs> I mean, I will tell you that I don't think they're crazy at all. Fashion. No, I can see how that would work because there's enough people who really... Well, it's not, they're not crazy sneakerheads. They're not like, uh, yeah. you know, they're not folks who are really that esoteric or that small as a community. It's actually very mainstream. And what's interesting about sneakers, but I would say about street fashion, is that the interest spans from 12-year-olds to 65-year-olds. And what's yeah. interesting is that, of course... Historically, you know, fashion has been viewed as something that is led by women, but a huge amount of this movement is actually men catching up to women yeah. um, with a sense of style. Isn't part of your job, though, to kind of get inside the minds of a millennial or a Gen Z or whatever? No disrespect, but yeah. you don't look like you guys are millennials. I think you're probably about my age. No, you're absolutely Ish. right. So how do you do that? Because at a certain point, it's, isn't it increasingly difficult to kind of age out kind of the trends you're supposed to be spotting i think that's a that's a really fair point and it's a combination of the fact that you know the folks that you see in this room do not represent the entire <laughs> investment team at index yeah. and that we spend a lot of time observing and paying attention to what the market is telling us and you know what are the signals that we can that we can observe from the noise out there. Also coming up with theses that probably a lot of our peers think are pretty crazy, but we think are quite insightful. So one of them around fashion has been, you know, that perhaps fashion is the social lubricant that music was in the 20th century. That's one of your theses? Yeah. Okay. That youth today... Do, do tell. No, no, yeah. That youth today basically actually find other folks that they have a connection with 
through what they're wearing, through the combination of things that they're wearing. Some of them are generic, some of them are really esoteric, and that actually breaks down social barriers. So when I was a kid, if I went to Nairobi and I started singing Billie Jean, you know, some Kenyan yeah. would start singing with me. Today, they'll probably look at, you know, the 18-year-old, the what he's wearing, and that will be the connection. Oh, I, I, I actually recognize that pair of, you know, that Supreme T-shirt or that, you know, that pair of Air Maxes. Right. And oftentimes, they're not actually bought new. They're bought used. Just before you guys walked in, I was reading something on my phone because that's what you do when you have nothing to do these days. And I was reading a story about SoftBank. They're about to invest, I don't know, 15 or 20 billion into WeWork, supposedly. How has the arrival of SoftBank changed things? Or has it, because it, it just feels like, I mean, if they have $100 billion and they're already talking about raising a new fund, and it seems that they are going to a given sector and just anointing a winner and then just giving them more money than God and say, okay, now beat everybody. And it does seem to have changed the dynamics, at least here in Silicon Valley. I don't know if, what your perspective would be. So definitely there is a world before SoftBank and a world after SoftBank. I mean, to your point, it's $100 billion that they are deploying towards private companies in the tech space. And $100 billion is like, I don't know, that's just orders of magnitude beyond anything. Before. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The reality is that for us, it doesn't change that much. The way that we digest that is that our companies are likely to be private longer and that we really have to make sure that we continue to invest in phenomenal entrepreneurs and make sure that they're growing the most successful companies because they're going to have to win. And sometimes, you know, SoftBank will back them and sometimes SoftBank won't. And oftentimes, yeah. and, and oftentimes it makes sense for SoftBank to come in, but oftentimes the entrepreneur or the board doesn't want SoftBank to come in. So I think what it does is it just clarifies the fact that companies have a very significant opportunity that money is not going to be challenging to get if you're doing a phenomenal job in your respective area and that it's going to be unbelievably competitive. So you better believe that you want to do this and you want to be passionate. You have the right level of passion to suffer through the, the good and bad times of what you're going after. And that's, that's an interesting aspect that in some ways, and I, you know, we haven't really talked about it that much, but I think it's, it's actually the Sequoias and SoftBanks of the world who have now decided that they're going to, you know, they're in the mega fund land. In some ways, it's attracted more entrepreneurs mm. because they're thinking, my God, there's, this is it. This is the, this is El Dorado. <laughs> um, on the other hand, it really has made it very clear that for us, we have to find entrepreneurs that are not doing it because they think that business is moving in this direction, but rather that they're super passionate about their segment and the industry that they're trying to disrupt and the product that, you know, that it, they're going to provide to the consumer. Yeah, because I think that's the, one of the, and this isn't necessarily a so, soft bank issue, but 
I've talked to some people who think there's there is so much money in the system now. Whether it's through if you're at Facebook and you got in at there at the right time, you are loaded. A lot of these platforms are minting people in a way that just it's always happened, but perhaps not to this scale. And that is kind of skewing the dynamic around who's starting businesses, who isn't, who comes in, who stay, who kind of goes off and you know sails around the world for the rest of their lives. If you, just in terms of the sheer money, as these companies become, I mean, I think the five biggest companies in the world are all on the West Coast now, and they all give the, their workers stock. It just feels like there's this, there's a kind of a new reality here that is changing the way this the whole industry operates. A lot of interesting observations in there. Uh, so I'd say the first one I would like to touch on is w- what is the sort of the driver of entrepreneurship and at the end of the day would we back as the, sort of the leading indicator of success and i would say in one word it's ambition so it's sort of not what you did yesterday because you were an early employee in facebook but what hunger you have and what hoops and what sacrifices you'll make in order to make your next venture happen and we look for that sort of spark in the eye that hunger that you know, I'll go the extra mile, and and th- th- there are signals we look for. You know, we call it sort of mission-driven as opposed to mercenary. Mission-driven meaning I've experienced a problem that I I'm so keen on solving. I'm going to drop what I'm doing, and I'm going to go and solve that problem, and I'll overcome obstacles. And 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 that's really uncorrelated to whether you have made no money, some money, or a lot of money. And right. and we've. We've backed, um, with Danny and our partners, we've backed first-time entrepreneurs. We've backed second-time entrepreneurs. In some cases, third-time entrepreneurs. The distribution is actually pretty pretty Mm. even. The second thing I would touch on is your observation on sort of where those very large outcomes have come from. And I think you're right, pointing at some of these, these extremely large platforms that predominantly have come from from um, California yeah. I would I would sort of nuance that is that that's changing and I would say the world is getting flatter the access to global markets is now from anywhere and if you sort of look you know if you step back it you know Danny mentioned Skype and that was an exit from the index stable in mid 2000s and that was sort of the, the first more than a billion dollar before that yeah you where it was invented <laughs> super successful exit and if you just look at this year alone i mean we have had uh, seven ipos so far uh, from the index portfolio family but the origin of those companies is really pretty global they're yeah. not all californian companies you know look at uh, a company like adyen came from a very humble modest sort of background out of amsterdam and many people have not heard the name, but everybody's heard of their customer names. Yeah. And that's a company that's gone to be sort of more than a $20 billion public company. And not just to talk about our own portfolio. Look, Spotify, you know, to speak of the music industry, yeah. came out of Europe, more than a $30 billion company. And again, it's just, it's not to only champion Europe, it's to make the point that, you know, you look at Chinese companies, you know, Metuan just went public more than a 50 billion dollar company i've never so, even heard of it and it's um, so so and right. and you've got number yeah. of these very very large outcomes coming out of china 
and a lot of these names as is exactly as you say they are not household names yeah. yet m- they are addressing massive audiences massive user bases uh, with with huge revenues because you know the populations are the population is that large yeah and i imagine just because everybody has the supercomputer in their hand the opportunities are probably i don't know historically greater than at any time in the history of venture capital i would uh, guess and that's why we are so excited about the opportunity we see today as right. exactly right and and i would actually go even further and i would reinforce that rarely we would consider sort of in our partner meeting when a company presents rarely would we now see a business that wouldn't out of the gate have a plan to be a global business uh, perhaps back to where we started this conversation sort of a decade ago that might have looked different you'd be building a company in a particular european market or maybe yeah. for europe you're a british company you'd sort of say well the next market is france as an example yeah. But really, out of the gate today, we're seeing European companies wanting to go global. You know, U.S. is just one part of that journey, and U.S. companies that are kind of doing the reverse. Right. I have a question about money. Is cash, like physical money, is it on its way out? You spend a lot of your time investing in fintech. Uh, So I give you two halves of the answer. Um, I would say we believe in electronification trend in in general you know the the sort of the paper to electronic Mm -hmm. the analog to digital i've just started using apple pay and you love it it's awesome it is it is cool obviously apple pay in itself is just one sort of uh cog in 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 the wheel because you need the other side you need merchant acceptance you need better terminals and you know if you look at the the journey that Adyen has gone through, right? You know, originally started as a as an online, uh, you know, card not present. You know, you shopping on the internet. Yeah. And of course, because of the vision that was sort of unified single platform for payments. You know, given the fact that eighty five percent of the world payments are actually in store, you know, physical retail, yeah. which Danny knows a lot about. You know, that's a massive opportunity, and they sort of backsold for that. But back in the days, the terminal was an analog sort of box on a telephone line and now it's just an access point to the cloud so definitely if you look at the the stats this trend is only continuing this what i would call electronification trend at the same time cash has not disappeared no and it's in a way a great opportunity to see you know startups around sort of the peer-to-peer payments or local Obviously, contactless has, has created, a, for the, the micropayment, a, a, a wonderful solution. And, and as Danny talks about sort of these very large niches, whether that's ticketing, parking, coffee, yeah. peer-to-peer, there are, you know, payments is probably one of the largest segments we look at because ultimately every transacted dollar of GDP is ultimately subject to some yeah. form of money movement just by definition. So I guess to conclude this, I mean, it's, it's a sector we just spend a lot of time on because opportunities you, keep coming. You mentioned ticketing. Are you guys doing anything in ticketing? Because just, we just purchased tickets for Jay-Z and Beyonce. And I know how, know how much I spent on quote-unquote processing fees and handling fees and all of this stuff. And I feel like ticketing is ripe for just somebody to come in and just not completely gouge people. 
It's a really interesting. I mean, that it's feel, a really it feels like an sector. antediluvian industry. People are getting screwed every time they buy any ticket. Yeah, I mean, look, I think folks. It's sort of like airlines, and it's sort of like hotel rooms, and it's sort of like all of these areas where you know there's scarcity. I mean, we were talking about sneakers. You know, you were talking about folks who these sneaker heads who are willing mm-hmm. to spend ten thousand dollars for a pair of Nikes. It's sort of the same mentality right when people want it they want it yeah so i think it's i think ripe. the problem there in please spend some in... time on that please okay. <laughs> for all of our sakes i mean look there's so much to talk about there's so many so many areas that we could mention um you know one of the areas that definitely we're super excited about is uh how companies we haven't talked about companies but we should talk mm. about that one day like how how important company cultures are and how do you really provide a service to help companies retain employees when they've been super successful or when mm. they're unsuccessful how to make better managers of everyone um, how to actually codify best behavior um, you know it's a it's an area for us that historically has been seen as something that is touchy-feely. I was going to say, it's a, it's a bit European, isn't it, it? It's actually, I would say that the Europeans, you know, you look at the office, right? You remember yeah, Ricky yeah, Gervais yeah, yeah, in the office. Yeah, yeah. I would say that the, that, the, that the touchy-feely nature in Europe is, is less prepared for really what has to happen from a cultural standpoint inside a company. Well, because, uh, well, so here we are, we're sitting four standard issue white guys. Yeah. Including <laughs> But I mean, aren't we kind of part of the problem here? In terms of the tech industry and, you know, you get the diversity and the kind of who's making the products, who are they making the products for, how are the people who are not in this club treated both in terms of products and also within these companies? Yeah. I mean, I would say what what I was pointing at is actually, you know, it's interesting. Are we part of the problem or part of the part of the solution? I think what we're trying to notice is that there is a problem that that culture in companies is something vibrant and something that has to be invested upon and might be the biggest differentiator for that company. Jan was talking about product. You need product and product is created by people. And so there's a lot of work that has to happen in making sure that, that, that those people are happy and are thriving so that they can really sort of blossom. And so yeah. we, that's an area that we are really excited about. One of our companies just announced earlier this week called Humu. Um, that was created by have great names. Yeah, exactly. It's a f- <laughs> the national fish of or the state fish of Hawaii. It was started by this guy Laszlo Bock, who wrote that book Work okay. Rules, because um, he was the chief people officer at Google for over a decade, and that's really what he's trying to do is to take that those lessons that made the Google culture so successful, not only developing people but retaining them and providing that capability to all companies out there. This isn't a gotcha question, but do you guys have any female partners or people of color? Yes, okay. yes, on, okay. uh, yes on both. Oh, okay. Because yeah. often it's, uh, well, I'll have these conversations with a venture capital firm, which I mean is most of them, which don't. 
just because it's whatever. I mean, the, it, you guys all know the stats. I mean, they're pretty. Yeah, uh, I mean, we uh, obviously it's a, it's a very important topic yeah. on 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 all aspects in terms of um, you know e- equality and equal access and opportunity, whether it's by race, religion, background, nationality, ethnicity, yeah. color, gender, and so forth. And I would just sort of extend that that it's not we believe that's a very important notion, but also that we sort of um, share that with our portfolio companies because it's it's sort of the extended step. Uh, right. Because of course, our portfolio companies, you know, we we are a firm of sort of fifty-ish partners and employees, but sort of our companies employ thousands of people. Yeah, yeah. So that that yeah. notion is important not just for us but for the companies we invest in. Yeah. And that is it. I want to thank Danny and Jan, who are very generous with their time, um, especially as immediately after our chat, they had a party to get to. So Index had a reception that same evening at a very shishi Mexican restaurant that is apparently Reimer's favorite spot to eat in San Francisco. So rather than the typical audio that we usually use on the intro and outro, I thought I'd let Trio Paz play us out, um, who were there playing that night. I hope you dig that, and I'll talk to you next week. Oh, before I go, one other thing. Give us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the show. Do it now. Anyhow, bye-bye. See you next week. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.